morning, good afternoon, or good evening. And welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Right now, you can get free shipping on orders over $25 from Bookmarks' nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Bookmarks also offers curbside pickup on Wednesdays and Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. For more information or to place an order, visit bookmarksnc.org. My guest today is Tom Clavin, whose new book, Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and The Vendetta Ride from Hell, was just published. Tom, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Oh, thanks for having me. You have a new book out, and under normal circumstances, that means you would be out on book tour. Um, we were supposed to have this podcast in person when you came for a Bookmarks event. Um, what does the life of an author with a new book out look in look like in April 2020? Well, it's it's there are differences. There are some similarities. I mean, one of the similarities is that you try and. I'd be talking to people who are doing radio interviews and, and, and you know, some podcasts anyway, because that's a great way to reach people, obviously. Uh, you know, the, the radio podcasts, they have a wonderful reach any time of year. Uh, but yes, there's, uh, I, I would have been, I think, sometime this week uh, in, in uh, Winston-Salem and uh, appearing at Bookmarks. And uh, tentatively, that's been rescheduled for Monday, July 13. So hopefully the the, the tour that got canceled. I, I miss that. Um, I'm not what you would call a gregarious person. I mean, let's face it, I, I spend most of my time sitting in my home office anyway, <laughs> pandemic or not. Uh, and I'm socially distant. <laughs> and my, my daily attire is usually, unless I really have to go out for something, is, is sweatpants and a sweatshirt. But uh, I do enjoy giving talks about my books. Um, and I think the big reason for that is because the people I encounter are so receptive. And, yeah. and you know, you know, I don't walk into a, a room or a bookshop or, or a library or any place like that, like a comedian thinking, okay, this is going to be a rough crowd. Or I've got to win them <laughs> over. You know, I am aware that most people are there, if not everybody's there, because they have an interest in the book or they've read something you've written previously or they've already read the book you're promoting. So they're usually a very warm welcome by people. And, and I also don't read from the book necessarily. I mean, we've all seen author uh, appearances where mostly they want to read from their book and then they may answer questions or not. And that doesn't interest me very much. I think everybody who's there already has the ability to read. So uh, I like to tell a story, tell stories from the book. You know, for example, if I had been there, talking about Tombstone, and it's the two previous books in the trilogy, Dodge City and Wild Bill, I wouldn't be reading necessarily from them. I mean, maybe an isolated passage or two, but there's a particular point I want to make. But mostly it's, uh, let me tell you about Wyatt Earp and the Earp Brothers, where they came from and, and, and what they were doing in Tombstone, all, all five of them at the same time. Let me tell you about Wild Bill Hickok. How was it that he had, ended up being in the very first recorded gunfight of the American West? So, I see myself as a storyteller. It's a good atmosphere to be in these places with people who came there to hear you. And it's it's like visiting with friends. Yeah. So you're you're a feature writer. You've written features for the New York Times and a, and a lot of national magazines. Um, it, do you find sometimes that a feature 
becomes the seed of a book? And, and if so, how do you how do you look at a feature article that you've written and go, there's a book here? How can, how can you tell the difference between one that that is a nascent book and one that's just a feature article? Uh, no, that's a good question because I can think of the top of my head the, the very, very first book I got published, which was in 1993, was called Raising the Rainbow Generation. And if anybody would have still find it, it's still out there somewhere, you'd see my name in very small letters because I was doing an article for a publication called Child Magazine, and I interviewed this couple, uh, African-American husband and wife psychologist couple, and we really hit it off during that interview, and they asked me, uh, for, for the article that I did. And after the article was published, they asked me to assist them with a book they were writing. And that was my foot in the door. I certainly, when I was doing the article, didn't think about it would become a book or anything like it would become a book. So it was really more a relationship I forged. But then there was a different uh, experience when um, uh, I did a book, I, I did an article with a good friend of mine named Bob Drury, and we did a story for Men's Journal called, uh, well, it was called uh, Typhoon Cobra at the time. But it was a true story about a, a, a typhoon that hit the third fleet of Admiral Halsey in the Pacific in December 1944. And three ships were sunk and almost 900 men were lost. It was the greatest loss of life of any naval engagement in World War II. It just happened to be the enemy was a typhoon and not, not the Japanese in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And that... <clears throat> At the time that we were working on that, we saw the bigger picture that there's there's so many stories here. There's so, at the time we were doing it, which would have been 2005, 2006, you still had a pretty good reservoir of men who had experienced that storm to get eyewitness interviews and reminiscences of that. Yeah. And, and we had so many interesting stories that could not possibly be fit into an article. So that was an example of, yes, at that time, I thought that there was that article could be expanded into a book. That's not usually how it's happened for me, but it, but it can happen. Of course, we certainly see uh, books that are published today and films that, would, that, would, that began as, as magazine features. Yeah. So you've written on a, a variety of subjects. We've, we've heard you mention a couple of them already. What got you interested in the American West? It was really, uh, my first idea was I, I wanted to write a biography of Bat Masterson. I can't tell you that I had any strong, you know, I was born with a desire to write a biography of Bat Masterson. It was just that at that point in my life, when we're talking about five or six years ago, that I had come across some information about him. I did some research. I said, gosh, he's such an intriguing character. I couldn't get my publisher interested. They didn't think there was enough there there. And so I shifted gears a bit and started to research a particular time and place, which was when Bat Masterson and his best friend, Wyatt Earp, were in their 20s. They were young lawmen, and they found themselves trying to clean up Dodge City in the 1870s, which was billed at the time as the wickedest town in the American West. And so that was something, that, that more focused story, and, you know, Writers, I'm sure, have found this, that sometimes an idea doesn't work in one form, but sometimes maybe you focus it onto a different or more narrow uh, uh, story, and, and that's how it's going to work. And so that became the book Dodge City. And, and you know, thankfully, it became a really big bestseller. It was on the New York Times and a bunch of other lists for, for a long time. And so my editor said, you know, well, look, look, we're making money on this. Can you think of another iconic American West hero to write about? 
And I said, well, everybody's heard the name Wild Bill Hancock, but there really hasn't been a book written about him for a mainstream audience in over 40 years. So that became the book Wild Bill. And then my publisher was sold well. And then my publisher said, you know what? We've got a trilogy here. We've got a, we have, we have Wild Bill. We've got Dodge City. Let's wrap up the trilogy and do Tombstone. So I've always had an interest in, in the American West. I mean, certainly growing up as a kid, seeing it on television and, and, and great Westerns that I watched in the movie theaters and revival houses. But it was really the the unanticipated success of what was supposed to be a one-off Dodge City that led to a trilogy that has, has had me spending the last five or six years immersed in the American West. And and you talk about that there being sort of an arc to that trilogy. What do you, what do you see that arc of those three books as being? Well, if we started with it, it's really chronologically the, fir- the first story that is, is Wild Bill. After the Civil War ended, Wild Bill was sort of the prototype for the frontier lawman. Uh, he was the lone gunman, where pistol on, on his two pistols on his belt, and the way of that that law enforcement was done then, those more rough and tumble times, was he could draw faster and outshoot the bad guys and kill the bad more bad guys that that, that would that could, that could kill good guys. That was the way who you tamed a town like Abilene and some places like that, Wichita. Mm-hmm. Um, Next in the story, there is an arc because then you have wide open Bat Masterson who start putting, taking seriously the word peace and, and the word peace officers. And so, so they, they were trying to find ways that you could actually have a court system, that you could actually arrest people and not kill them, put them on trial. And then you have the, the, the sort of like the, the conclusion of that arc, which is Tombstone, where you have emerging police departments. Frontier towns are, are building schools and churches and places to raise families. And that a Wild West aspect of the cowboy is starting to fade away. And, 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 and civilization, for good or bad, is taking over the frontier. So there is that kind of frontier lawman arc, how they evolved from Wild Bill to when it became, you know, Virgil and his brothers at the gunfight at the OK Corral. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and you've called the gunfight at the OK Corral and the Vendetta Ride the American Iliad and Odyssey. What, what do you mean by that? Well, because they're both so much part of our American West myth. Uh, they're, they're, and, and they're two events very closely related. One took place after the other, just like the Odyssey did after the Iliad. In uh, and, and, and the gunfight at the OK Corral, you have these iconic characters like Virgil and Morgan and Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday facing the the corrupt ranchers and cowboys and those sort of repre- of and the McLaurie brothers and the Clanton brothers representing the, the Wild West that was fading away. And and, and it was the, the 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 fall of Troy was sort of like the. The, the the end of that civilization and the ascent of of, of Greece and uh, and then you have in the gunfight the OK Corral you really have the the end of the of the Wild West I mean yes there would be some violent actions after that I'm not saying there was no more gunplay no more gun violence in the American West after the gunfight the OK Corral but but that was really the flashpoint where things turned. and then what happened after that is that it was not the end of the story completely just like the you know, the Odyssey had to take place to truly conclude the story. The Odyssey for Wyatt Earp was that he had his brother Morgan was ambushed and maimed for life. His brother, uh, Susan Virgil, was, was ambushed and maimed for life. His brother Morgan was ambushed and killed. And so Wyatt Earp, who was not by nature a violent man, 
was pushed beyond his limits. And he, he saddled up with the ever loyal Doc Holliday with him and another brother, Warren Earp, and a couple others forming this, this Vendetta Ride posse. And they went on this quest throughout Arizona to find, track down, and kill the men who had killed his brothers and shot his brothers. So that's, that's a, a journey that, that, uh, that took a, it only took a couple of weeks, but it was, it riveted the, the area because nobody knew when Wyatt Earp and his posse was going to show up next and who, was, who the next victim was going to be. Yeah. And I think for a lot of us, you know, for me, certainly, and I think for a lot of readers, we have some familiarity with the gunfight. That's those words, gunfight at the OK Corral, are just sort of part of our psyche. We've seen it in a film. Mm-hmm. Heard about, but we're a lot less familiar with the Vendetta ride. And I, I found that to be, um, you know, a really interesting balance to, as you just said, it sort of becomes this odyssey that, that a lot of readers may not know about. Well, I think... A big reason for that is that we've had some movies, some are considered classics, that have dealt with Tombstone and Wyatt Earp. Uh, you know, going back to the to the My Darling Clementine, yeah. which is considered one of John Ford's best westerns. You have the nineteen fifty seven movie with with Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster as Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp. And there's a couple other movies in there too. And they usually the climax of the movie is the gunfight at the OK Corral. So for many of us who got our information about the American West from the, from the big screen, that doesn't seem to be, there's no, that's the end of the story. And uh, now we know, and and thankfully to to writers who have always made sure to include that in in my book, Tombstone, you find out that that was not the end of the story. You know, the people in Tombstone wished it had been. They, They thought that this sudden outburst of violence was going to be kind of cathartic, and then the, and then the town could be at peace after that. And it turned out not to be because of the ongoing violence, and it really took that vendetta ride by Wyatt Earp and the deaths of, of more men to finally bring a, a conclusion to the story. Yeah. You write, to a certain extent, about the mythology of America. You've written about the, the Old West. You've written about baseball, which is certainly part of our mythos. <laughs> Um, but I wonder why certain parts of our history have attained this kind of mythological status. Why, for instance, is baseball mythological while football is, is a game? Why is the Wild West mythological while mid-century Florida is just a place? It, why do those things become, or how do those things become a part of, of mythology instead of just history? I think a big part of it is that uh, you know the the statistics have changed, uh, but but for for much of our history since the game was invented, baseball was as the term was national pastime. Uh, you know, and, and the landscape of the 1930s, for example, was much different than it is now. The sports landscape, where back then you you know the, the three big biggest sports were probably baseball, horse racing, and boxing. You know, anybody who's read. Uh, the book Seabiscuit, which is one of the, one of the finest reads I've ever had by Lauren Hillenbrand, and she really evokes that period time and place in the 1930s, where, where millions of people went to the sports pages and, and racetracks were packed with people watching horse racing. Um, with baseball, you know, right through the, the 20s and 30s and 40s, and 50s, and into the 60s. I mean, it was it was a national pastime, and I think that we had these figures that. That, you know, it was maybe more of, uh, you know, with football, you're talking about 11 guys on each side, and each play involves all 22 in one way or another. But baseball, you know, you had, in a lot of ways, it's the man on the mound and it's the man at bat. 
Yeah. And and there's a lot more of an individual aspect to what's happening. So uh, you and you had these mythic characters emerge from baseball, like a Ty Cobb and a Babe Ruth yeah, and yeah. Lou Gehrig and eventually Joe Madge, Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams. So um you know, there's this probably uh, one of the finest, not the finest baseball movies, Field of Dreams. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you watch that and, and you, you see Kevin Costner really represents the, the, the person in many of us who saw baseball as this part of our American culture and this mythical aspect to it and are in awe of it. I mean, I, I, I miss baseball. I mean, I, the day, the day the World Series ends, I start counting the days until spring training opens. <laughs> <laughs> even to this day, I'll watch some basketball and some football, but for me, it's always been baseball. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the Field of Dreams is like a, a really, um, salient point because it's hard to imagine that, or certainly hard for me to imagine that kind of a movie <laughs> with any other sport. You know, with any other American sport, it, it just they don't they don't reach that level of you're being able to sort of buy into that that uh, sort of supernatural uh, quality that they have in that film. Uh, Hollywood often, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I think also because baseball and again things have changed, but I think for decades baseball was seen as the ultimate family sport. Yeah, you, know, you didn't bring a family to the racetrack to watch the horses. You didn't bring a family to boxing, but you brought a family, uh, an entire family, with either on the radio listen to a baseball game or be at the baseball stadium. And I think that was a difference. Yeah, Hollywood often gave us and and sometimes still gives us a picture of the Wild West that is pretty binary. The good guys are good. The bad guys are bad. But you paint a much more complicated picture. Can, can you talk a little bit about the moral gray areas that you encountered in the story? Yeah, the, the, with, with Tombstone, um, and to some extent, the previous books, Wild Bill and Dodge City, that's an important aspect of it, too. The good guys are not all good. and The bad guys are not all bad. But I think that in Tombstone, that's most starkly apparent because uh, Virgil Earp was the marshal of Tombstone at the time. It was not Wyatt Earp. Virgil was the the, the only lawman in that uh, in that uh, in that gunfight. Uh, he did deputize his brothers Wyatt and Morgan and Doc Holliday, but they sort of reluctantly represented the Law and Order faction, uh, the the good, so to speak, with quotes around it uh, faction. But but they were they were there to, to in, in Tombstone to make money. They they had some some. Um, unsavory aspects in their past. I mean, Wider, for example, had spent time in prison as a horse thief. And Doc Holliday was was really a, a rather unappealing person. Uh, I mean, the, the only, I mean, the best quality he had and may have been the only really good quality he had is that he was fiercely loyal to Wyatt and he would take a bullet for Wyatt. And when the gunfight at the OK Corral was about to happen, uh, he insisted on, on being there alongside the Earp brothers to help them. He didn't care about law and order. He was a gambler. I mean, law and order had shut him down. That's why he ended up at Tombstone. They'd get kicked out of other towns on his way west. And and then on the other side, you had the so-called bad guys. You had the McLowry brothers, uh, Tom and Frank. They were not bad guys. I mean, they they were ranchers who wanted who wanted to stay in the area long term and run their ranches and. And, and hire people and raise their horses and their cattle. Yes, they sort of turned a blind eye to cattle rustling and horse thieving and things like that. The same thing with the Clantons. The Clantons were involved in, in cattle rustling, but they were not, you know, the night before the gunfight at the OK Corral, Virgil Earp, Ike Clanton, and Johnny Behan, the, the do nothing sheriff, we're all playing poker together. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. so these were, these were not mortal enemies by any means. 
but but they did the Clintons and the McLowrys did sort of represent that Wild West that that didn't want law and order. The Earps who didn't ask for the job, but they found themselves you know in that in that vacant lot in October eighteen eighty one representing the law and order. Uh, uh, the, the people in Tombstone who were looking to become a twentieth century town they were sort of representing that. I think largely because of, of books and films, um, we think of the Wild West as this vast expanse of American history. And maybe it's also because the West itself is so vast. But how long did this period really last? You know, pretty much, uh, you know, you go from the Civil War ending in 1865, and, and you could say that the White Earp Vendetta ride, which took place several months after the gunfight, the OK Corral, we're talking about you know, March and April of 1882. Once that ride was over, that was sort of the end of the Wild West. I mean, you can't say the American West because the American West is still there. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just different from the Wild West than it once was. So if that's the case, you're talking about a total of 17 years. Uh, there are some people who might say, well, it really, you can, you can say it didn't end until... 1890, uh, when there was the Wounded Knee Massacre, and you really had, that was the end of the 300-year war that had gone on between white people and Indians. And you also had around that time, uh, in the 1880s, the I think it was the Department of the Interior, the secretary said, he proclaimed the frontier was closed. You know, there was no more open territory to be discovered and to be settled. It had all pretty much been done by then. Yeah. And so you're really talking about uh, if you go from the 1865 the end of the Civil War to the conclusion of the Vendetta Ride, it's really only a 17-year period. But it was a period of great excitement and great activity and great migration, maybe not so much for the Indians, but for, as far as the white people were concerned, uh, there was a huge expansion that, you know, past the Missouri, past the Mississippi, past the Rocky Mountains and until they bumped up into California. Yeah, yeah. How do you think we see the influence of, of Wild West and Wild West culture in American society today? Uh, well, we see it kind of literally when you go to places like Dodge City and Tombstone and you see reenactments being done seasonally because it's a way to bring in some tourist dollars. And you go to some other town like Abilene and Wichita and you still see what's Cody, Wyoming, where the Buffalo Bill Museum is. You know, you still see these these aspects that want to are actively trying to keep the history of of the Wild West alive and uh, for 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 the entertainment purposes purposes, but also for education purposes. But you know what we're seeing with with the well with the American West is uh, to me, I I enjoy and uh, I still try and do it as much as I can. I enjoy driving long distances out west. Um, even not if I don't have a particular destination or an urgency to get someplace, because there's still to me that that great, you know, the the, the big sky country and there's yeah. Colorado and there's the, the Southwest and even driving through Kansas. So you go from Kansas City to Dodge City takes hours to get there, and the whole landscape changes. So I, I think the the wild to me the wild west, the historical west, is still very present. When you take these drives and you see the expansion, because you can still drive through areas where you hardly see anybody or anything. Yeah. And, and to me, it's, it's still got, there's still a breathtaking aspect to it. And of course, when you meet the people, because, you know, you're going to see, you talk to somebody who's from Colorado or who's from New Mexico, you know, uh, they're, they're going to be a different conversation than you talk to somebody from Mississippi or somebody from Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, as I was reading this, I, I felt to me like your prose style in this book seemed particularly suited to the subject matter. I could almost imagine myself sinking into a, a Zane Grey novel or a voiceover in a John Ford film. Mm-hmm. Do, do you try to adapt your style to your subject? Well, maybe by the third book in the trilogy, I got it right. <laughs> I, I I do think so. I'm not trying to copy any particular writer. You know, I have read, um, you know, I'll reread some classic books about the American West when I'm working on them. I'll reread Shane by Jack Schaefer. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll reread uh, uh, Elmore Leonard. Uh, you know, is a wonderful writer. He's mostly associated with film, film noirish kind of mysteries, but he was a wonderful writer about the American West. Louis Lamour. Uh, I'll, I'll read uh, some of his short stories and, and novels. Uh, you read more contemporary. I don't think you know one of the finest writers I think in America today and for the last fifty years has been Larry McMurtry. Yeah. Uh, most people don't know that Lonesome Dove is not a standalone book, but it's part of a quartet. <clears throat> I mean. You read you read Larry McMurtry's quartet, um, and it's it's just uh, uh, awe inspiring. Uh, and Lonesome Dove being the most famous one because they made a great miniseries out of it. So um, I'm trying to write in a way that gives a sense of the American West in the 1880s that I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't try and imitate anybody because I can't, and I don't want to. And I don't want somebody reading Tombstone and saying, oh, that sounds like, it, 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 it's not like I'm reading, and name another writer. Yeah. Uh, I want them to read a, a Tom Clavin book, but I'm trying to be part of that time and place in the prose that I'm using. Yeah. <clears throat> so we've talked a little bit about Wyatt Earp as a lawman, but I was fascinated by his career before he got to Tombstone. Tell, tell us a little about, about his journey west. Well, Wyatt was born in Illinois, and he uh, he and his, his, fa- his father, Nicholas Earp, uh, who, with two wives, had ten children, was a very restless sort. So Wyatt was, uh, and, and the other kids were uh, often being on the road, you know, for, between Illinois and Iowa and Missouri and, and other places, and Wyatt and his brother Virgil especially inherited that from his father, very restless people. And um, uh, Wyatt would have probably, you know, ironically having said that, uh, when he was in Lamar, Missouri, where Nicholas Earp and, and a few of his younger siblings were still living, uh, he met a young woman and, and got married and she got pregnant and Wyatt became a constable. And we probably never would have heard of Wyatt Earp if he, if he had remained there because he was thinking he bought a house he was going to settle down and, and for as far as he knew, spend the rest of his life in Lamar, Missouri. Uh, but his wife died. The baby died. It was probably from cholera. And this, this set Wyatt off on this journey of restlessness where uh, he wandered around. I mentioned he was in prison for being a horse thief. He got into trouble in different places. He was a bouncer at brothels. Um, you know, he did some, some illegal things. And um, his... His um, redemption, in a way, was he ended up in in, uh, in Wichita, Kansas, and uh, he was working with one of his brothers, James, and he became again a part-time lawman, and that was his turning point personally because he started to see himself as somebody who wanted to uphold the law more than break it, uh, who wanted to turn his life around. He thought, well, maybe. 
you know, maybe I can contribute something to society or probably more important is maybe I'll have a chance to find an occupation that I can make some money and be a, you know, upstanding member. Uh, he was always trying to, you know, elevate himself a little bit higher in the standing in society. And uh, he did not, turn, you know, being a lawman was not his ambition in life. He was a good gambler. He thought he was a good businessman. Yeah. He wasn't really as good as he thought he was. But it was almost like he fell into it. And obviously we know Wyatt today as a famous lawman. Uh, but that was not what he set out to be. And he kept trying to escape that throughout his life and always kept being. It's like the line from Godfather 2. Every time you think you're, you're out, they keep drawing you back in. Yeah. That happened to Wyatt Earp. Yeah. How do you research a book that is set in a wild frontier where there were no archivists or rare book libraries? I mean, what, what sort of materials survive and, and how and where did you find them? Well, in the case of Tombstone, uh, a bit of good fortune. Um, in the case of Tombstone, a bit of good fortune is that there were two newspapers. Uh, and, and in general, that was a good thing about the frontier is that when a town was established, many times soon after a town was established, somebody would open up a newspaper. Uh, that was part of our, I think, our cultural DNA that we wanted to record as things were happening and report and share news as, it, as news was happening in our, in our new town. So Tombstone had the epitaph and had the nugget. So many of those archives exist to this day to go back and really on a daily basis see what life in Tombstone was like and, and you know, mentions of Wyatt Earp and Virgil Earp and, and the Clans and the others, other characters. Um, there, there weren't archivists as an occupation, but you had people like who were in my book, for example, George Parsons, who was a uh, relentless uh, a journal keeper, uh, who would end up becoming the first librarian of Tombstone. Uh, you had Clara Brown, who was writing to her friends and readers back in San Diego, where she was originally from. Uh, she was living in Tombstone, and she would write these accounts of, of things as they were transpiring and send them back to be published in the newspaper in San Diego. So, um, thankfully, uh, you know, it was more of a challenge when I was working on my book, Wild Bill, because so many of the events were taking place immediately after the Civil War, but you didn't have as many newspapers, uh, as many archivists and journal keepers as you do by the time you get to the early 1880s with Tombstone. But that, that's the, you know, you don't have reporters in, in 1881 Tombstone that are going to be Pulitzer Prize winners, but they still, were reporting and giving accounts of what was happening and what they were witnessing. And that kind of material is extraordinarily valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, was there any point in your research that, that something surprised you or took you off in an unexpected direction? To me, an unexpected direction was the, the transition in wider. Uh, you know, he was, Again, he was not somebody who was a violent person. I mean, the gunfight at the OK Corral was an aberration. Even in Dodge City, uh, where he was a deputy marshal, uh, he was not somebody that enforced the law by shooting his gun. Um, he, he, would, he would arrest people. He would knock them, down, knock them down and knock them out and drag them off to jail. Uh, he was not a drinker. I mean, he, he, alcohol made white herbs sick. Uh, so he was, he was not, a, he was a kind of an introvert. He was not an outgoing person. So, um, that, but then when, when Virgil was ambushed and shotgunned, almost took his left arm off and he was maimed for life. And he was, Wyatt was closest probably to Virgil than any other brother. 
And then his other brother, Morgan, his younger brother, when they were playing pool together, and, and suddenly the, the glass behind them shatters and two bullets hit Morgan, and, and he dies on the pool table. And the cold-blooded murder shot in the back. Uh, you know, Doc Holliday arrived at the scene as Morgan was dying, and right when Morgan died, you know, Wyatt and Doc exchanged this glance. And I write about this in the book. The, the glance that they exchange was this acknowledgement that that this this can't keep going. We we have to do something. Wyatt, if you're going to do something, Doc's saying, I'm with you 100%. And Wyatt turned basically from trying to be an upstanding citizen, being a, a lawman when called upon to a vigilante. Yeah, yeah. And that's what, even though he had the appointment of a deputy federal marshal, so there was a you know, quasi-legal justification for what he did, that the vendetta ride was a vigilante action. I mean, Wyatt got Doc and his brother and a few others, none of whom were lawmen, to ride with him, to track these guys down. And when they found them, there was no judge, no jury. There was no you know cops to put on them. They were killed. Yeah. And so that's what kind of surprised me, that the vendetta ride turned wider. And, and I guess the other thing that surprised me is that when it was over, he put that behind him. He said, I did what I had to do. And now I'm going to go back. I'm going to, I'm going to go find the woman I fell in love with in Tombstone, and we're going to start this journey where it takes us. I don't know, but I'm done with being a lawman. I'm done with guns. And basically, Wyatt Earp was. Yeah, yeah. As as a fiction writer myself, I have the luxury of being able to create my characters from scratch. I can make them say and do whatever I want to. But you're constrained by by history, by actual events. But nonetheless, you are creating characters for for the reader. Tell us a little bit about the process of character making in a nonfiction book? Well, a lot of, uh, you know, to me, the writing part is the, is the, the, the cherry on top of the, the cake, whatever, uh, I think on the cake, because that's the fun part of the writing. What goes into it is, uh, it could be a year, it could be two years, depending on the project of research and organizing and collecting and, and whittling down and, and, uh, distilling the best parts. Um, and that's how I get a sense, a better sense of who the character is. So like you say, uh, I, I, my characters are not products of the imagination where you can make them up and make them do or say what you want. Uh, that they, they sort of come out of your mind onto the page. In my case, they sort of seep into my mind as I find out more about them and, mm-hmm. and, and what their backgrounds were like, what their families were like, what events transpired, how they acted, what they, what they said, what they, in interviews they may have given later in life, what they said about events that took place in their life that I'm going to be writing about. So <clears throat> by the time I, I, I write, which like I say could be even two years after starting a book, uh, after the initial research, uh, I feel like I know these people. And I'm reporting on what they're doing and saying. Um, and I do think that nonfiction writing is easier than fiction writing. Uh, I don't do fiction writing. I'm not smart enough to do fiction writing. Uh, I, the reason why I say I think it's easier is because with a fiction writer, to me it seems that if you run into a wall or an obstacle or something's not working, um, you really have only yourself to depend upon to get yourself out of that fix. With a nonfiction writer, if I hit a wall or something is not working or I'm maybe thinking I'm going in the wrong direction, go back to the research, go back to the material, go back to the information. And, and you know, by that point, when I'm in the writing process, I've got tons of it. Yeah. And almost always, it's going to help me find a way out and get back on track. Yeah. 
Tell us a little bit about the actual town of, of Tombstone, Arizona. Did you go there when you were working on the book, and, and what's it like now? I'd been there before, so mm-hmm. when I was working on the book, I didn't go there while I was working on it. And I think one reason, a big reason was was deliberate. Uh, first of all, I had, I had you know pretty clear memories of, of Tombstone, and, but uh, you know the Tombstone that I'm writing about is today a uh, mostly a tourist attraction. Yeah. I don't mean that in a negative way. Uh, I completely understand that the people of Tombstone and, and Tombstone survives not because of the gunfight at the OK Corral. You know, it's a, a thriving community in a lot of other ways. You know, it's got schools and families and businesses and everything else. Um, but uh, I, I didn't want to be influenced at all by the reenacting and by the the stories presented today, many, many of which are, are still quite accurate, but you're still talking about more of an entertainment uh, uh, factor. Uh, I wanted to do the research and 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 really see it as not academically necessarily because that would imply that the book is just a dry academic exercise, but to to have it very clear in my mind and you know what really happened based on my research and my greater and greater understanding and empathy for the characters who are in the book. Mm-hmm. So there are other writers who feel differently. They might want to go to a place and, and really immerse themselves in it. So it depends on the project and, and, and what their ultimate goal is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because you've written on such a wide variety of topics, I can't resist asking as we get close to the end of our discussion, what's next for you? What's next is, uh, uh, I, I st- my my friend and I, who I mentioned earlier, Bob Drury. You know, we've done six books together. The last one came out in 2018, Valley Forge, obviously about George Washington, the Continental Army, and we found ourselves so intrigued by that period of time in American history. We're, we're staying in it. The next book that I have that's going to be published is called Blood and Treasure. And it's about Daniel Boone and the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. And it's really that Western frontier and, and Daniel Boone and some of the other long hunters, as they were called, the founding of Kentucky and, and how during the American Revolution, this loose group of, of pioneers and Kentuckians uh, and Ohioans formed that Western boundary that sort of prevented the British from coming and, and attacking George Washington from the rear. And while they were also sort of founding and settling this first frontier, the, that that first group of people that came across the the, the Allegheny Mountains, um, and next for me as a solo writer is I have a book that I had to I put aside actually several years ago to work on on Dodge City and Wild Bill. Uh, it's a book of a World War II story uh, again a true story that I think has been untold. Uh, about a pilot, a farm boy, American farm boy, who ends up as a pilot during World War II. He's shot down over France in 1944, and uh, he's considered a terrorist. And instead of going to a POW camp, he ends up in the concentration camp Buchenwald, Mm. where he finds that he's one of 170 Allied pilots who have been judged terrorists and are sent to die in Buchenwald, and it's the story of their survival. Mm. Wow. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into writing and into your as well. So if you're ready, we'll begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? 
I, I love the word irrevocable. <laughs> you know, it's irrevocable meaning, you know, something has happened and you can't take it back or it's going to happen no matter what you do. So, uh, I, I, I like, I like the word irrevocable. I always try to get at least one irrevocable in every book. <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? I guess any words that are, that are imprecise. I know that sounds kind of vague and imprecise no. itself, but but um, uh, you know one of the one of the challenges of writing to me writing well and vividly is to try and use the precise word, especially adjectives, mm-hmm. that are going to describe something or or give the sense of a feeling to the reader. So so I, I don't know if there's one particular word, but. But, uh, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll read something and you don't get an image in your mind of what you're reading about. That's usually because the language is imprecise. Yeah. Where's your favorite place to write? I have, an, uh, I have a house in Sag Harbor, New York, and on the second floor is a, a room that's about, I'm going to say about 12 feet by 10 feet, and that's my office. And uh, this, is, this is my home within a home. That's my office. Okay. Where could you never write? I could never write in a restaurant or a Starbucks or places like that. And I know that many, many people do. I mean, you walk into a Starbucks, at least when you could walk into a Starbucks and see it filled with people. And you'd see people with their laptops or on their cell phones and they're tapping away. And uh, so obviously people do that. They can do that. Maybe for some people to have necessity, they don't have the luxury of a home office like I do. Uh, but I would find that very distracting as people are walking by and chatting. And I, I really do need that kind of isolation. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Gosh, it's probably, uh, but I try to correct myself. It's, it's ending the sentence with a preposition. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I really try not to do that. I can't say I ignore it. I just have, it, just, it just happens more often than I would like. Yeah. What was the first book you remember reading? I can tell you the first book that I remember reading that had the huge impression on me was A Wrinkle in Time oh, yeah. by Madeline Langle. Yeah. And that, yeah, I mean, that I think was so expanded my imagination. And I think it also was really important for me as a person to read that book because you had this, this plucky, intelligent, courageous female protagonist. So yes, I read Hardy Boys and things like that, but, but A Wrinkle in Time on so many levels uh, impressed me in, in, in a good way. What are you reading now? Well, right now I'm reading, uh, I am rereading a couple of different series that I had read many years ago. I'm rereading the John uh, D. McDonald, Travis McGee series. Mm-hmm. And I'm also rereading Ian Fleming's James Bond books. Yeah. They're dated in so many ways. And yes, they're very, you know, uh, you, you can say all you want about them being Bond being a narcissist and, and, and being, uh, you know, not, not very uh, uh, modern in its portrayal of women. But they're really well written and rather exciting thrills. Reading those, and then I'm reading a book on the history of the Confederate Navy because of a future project. Yeah, yeah. What book would you like to have written? I would love to have written anything by either Raymond Chandler or James Lee Burke. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there, and I know there are many, many writers that I should talk about and one to win Pulitzer prizes and Nobel prizes and all that kind of stuff. 
I, I think James Lee Burke is such a wonderful writer. Uh, I think Raymond Chandler was such a wonderful writer. I think his Law Goodbye is just a great, great book. And, yeah. you know, every few years I'll reread The Law Goodbye and say, gosh, if I could have written this, if I, if I would have, if I could have had some of this talent, I'd die a happy man. Yeah. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I would love to write a really good mystery. <laughs> I, I I enjoy you know page turning mysteries, mystery thrillers. You know uh, I, I love C.J. Box books and, and John Sanford and Michael Connolly and Lauren Esselman. Uh, these I think are just terrific writers, and they know how to plot things out and mysteries and everything. And Ian, Ian Rankin, they tie things up at the end. I don't have the mental ability to do that. I can't think, I can't plot things out. Maybe that's why I'm a nonfiction writer. <laughs> I need what really happened so I could tell the story. I can't figure one out myself. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I loved your book. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, or to order books for home delivery or curbside pickup, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Tom Clavin, whose book Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and The Vendetta Ride from Hell is available wherever books are sold. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been fun. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider posting a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking to Emily St. John Mandel about her new novel, The Glass Hotel. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.